0: where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for all things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 13 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Isabella of France, Chapter 1, Part 1. Since the days of the fair and false Elfrida, of Saxon celebrity, no Queen of England has left so dark a stain on the annals of female royalty, as the consort of Edward the Second, Isabella of France, she was the eleventh queen of England from the Norman Conquest, and with the exception of Judith, the consort of Ethelwulf, a princess of higher rank than had ever espoused a king of England, she was the offspring of a marriage between two sovereigns: Philip le Bel, King of France, and Jane, Queen of Navarre. Three of her brothers: Louis le Hutin, Philip le Long and charles le bel successively wore the royal diadem of france isabella was born in the year 1295 and when but four years old her name was included in the twofold matrimonial treaty which geoffrey de joinville as the envoy of edward i negotiated between that monarch and the princess marguerite sister of the king of france and the prince of wales with the princess isabella his daughter by the marriage articles it was covenanted that Philip le Bel was to give his daughter a portion of 18,000 pounds, and that she was to succeed to the dower which Edward I settled on his bride, the Princess Marguerite, her aunt. The solemn act of betrothment took place at Paris in the year 1303, when the Pope's dispensation for this union was published. The Count of Savoy and the Earl of Lincoln as the procurators of Edward, Prince of Wales, affianced the young princess, on his part, in the presence of her illustrious parents, Philip IV of France, and Jane, Queen of France and Navarre. The Lady Isabella received the troth of her future lord, Edward, son of the King of England, from the hand of Père Gill, the Archbishop of Narbonne. It appears that the young princess signified her assent to the marriage, by putting her hand in that of Père Gill, on condition that all the articles of the treaty were duly performed. She was then nine years old. Edward I was so desirous of this alliance, that among his deathbed injunctions to his heir, he charged him, on his blessing, to complete his engagement with Isabella. This was, in truth, the only command of his dying sire to which Edward II thought proper to render obedience. Such was his haste to comply with a mandate, which happened to be in accordance with his own inclination, that before the obsequies of his deceased king and father were performed, he dispatched the bishops of Durham and Norwich with the earls of Lincoln and Pembroke to the court of France to appoint a day for the solemnization of his nuptials. The report of the personal charms of his intended bride had indeed made so lively an impression on the mind of Edward the Second that he is reproached by the chroniclers of his reign with having lost the kingdom of scotland through his impatience to complete his marriage with her when he was apprised that all the arrangements for his marriage were concluded though perfectly aware that his recognition as king of scotland depended on his remaining there till the important affairs required his presence were settled he treated every consideration of political expediency with lover-like contempt and hasted to the fulfilment of his contract with the royal beauty There was the less cause for such unreasonable haste, since the fair Isabella had scarcely completed her thirteenth year at the time of her espousals. Great preparations were made at Westminster Palace for the reception of the young queen. The royal apartments, which had been burnt down in the preceding reign, and had been rebuilt, were completed and furnished. The gardens were new-turfed and trellised. The fish-ponds were drawn and cleaned and a sort of pier jutting into the Thames, called the Queen's Bridge, was repaired. The royal ship called the Margaret of Westminster was, with her boats and barges, entirely cleaned and beautified. Various butteries and wardrobes were constructed in the vessel, not only by the command, but according to the device of the king himself, for his expected queen's accommodation. After appointing his recalled favorite, Piers Gaveston, guardian of the realm, Edward sailed early on Monday morning, January 22nd, 1308, accompanied by his mother-in-law, Queen Marguerite, to meet his bride. He landed at Boulogne, where Isabella had already arrived with her royal parents. There, King Edward performed homage for Guienne and Ponthieu, to King Philip. The next day, being the festival of the conversion of St. Paul, the nuptials of Isabella and her royal bridegroom were celebrated, in the famous cathedral church of Boulogne, with peculiar magnificence. Four sovereigns, and as many queens, graced the bridal with their presence. These were the king and queen of France, the parents of the bride, Marie, queen dowager of France, her grandmother, Louis, king of Navarre, her brother, to whom Queen Jane, their mother, had resigned the kingdom she inherited, the king and queen of the Romans, the king of Sicily and Marguerite, Queen Dowager of England, Isabella's aunt. The Archduke of Austria was also present, and the most numerous assembly of princes and nobility that had ever met together on such an occasion. The dowry of the bride was provided from the spoils of the hapless knight's Templars, who had been recently tortured, plundered, and murdered by her father. Like most ill-gotten gains, this money by no means prospered in the spending. The beauty of the royal pair whose nuptials were celebrated with this extraordinary splendour excited the greatest admiration for the bridegroom was the handsomest prince in europe and the precocious charms of the bride had already obtained for her the name of isabella the fair who of all the royal and gallant company witnesses of these espousals could have believed their fatal termination or deemed that the epithet of she-wolf of france could ever have been deserved by the bride High feasts and tournaments were held for several days after the espousals, at which the nobility of four royal courts assisted. These festivities lasted nearly a fortnight. Edward and Isabella were married on the 25th of January, and on the 7th of February, they embarked for England, and landed at Dover the same day. There is, in the Fidera, a copy of the summonses that were sent to Alicia, the wife of Roger Bigod, Earl of Norfolk, the Countess of Hereford and other noble ladies, by the regent, Piers Gaveston, in the king's name, appointing them to be at Dover on the Sunday after the purification of the Virgin Mary, to receive the newly wedded queen, and to attend her on her progress to Westminster. The king and queen remained at Dover two days, where Piers Gaveston joined them. The moment the king saw him, he flew to him, fell on his neck, and called him, Brother, conduct which greatly displeased the queen and her uncles from dover the royal party proceeded to eltham where they remained till the preparations were completed for the coronation two of isabella's uncles charles count of valois and louis de clermont count of evreux brothers of philip le bel the duke of brabant with the great chamberlain of france and many other nobles came as guests to the coronation this ceremonial was postponed till Quinquagesima Sunday, February 25th, one month after the nuptials of the king and queen. The royal circular in the federa, addressed by King Edward to his nobles, in which he commands their attendance with their consorts at Westminster, to assist at the coronation solemnity of himself and his consort, Isabella, Queen of England, is the first royal summons in which the wives of the peers of England are included. The young queen's outfit was magnificent. She brought with her to England two gold crowns, ornamented with gems, a number of gold and silver drinking vessels, golden spoons, fifty silver porringers, twelve great silver dishes, and twelve smaller ones. Her dresses were made of gold and silver stuff, velvet and shot taffety. She had six dresses of green cloth from the Douai, six beautifully marbled, and six of rose scarlet, besides many costly furs. As for linen, she had 419 yards for the bath alone. She was likewise endowed with six dozen coifs, probably nightcaps. She brought tapestry for her own chamber, figured in lozenges of gold, with the arms of France, England, and Brabant. The King of France, on the occasion of his daughter's nuptials, had likewise made his royal son-in-law a profusion of costly presents, such as jewels, rings, and other precious articles, all of which Edward immediately bestowed on his favorite, Piers Gaveston, whose passion for finery was insatiable. Such conduct was peculiarly calculated to excite the displeasure of a young girl, and Isabella naturally resented this improper transfer of her father's munificent gifts, which she regarded as part of her dower and as heirlooms to her descendants. The nobles took occasion of the anger manifested by the young queen against the haughty favourite to signify to their sovereign that unless gaveston were banished from the court they would not attend the approaching coronation edward alarmed at an intimation which he knew amounted to a threat of withholding their oaths of allegiance promised that everything should be arranged to their satisfaction at the parliament that was to meet directly after his inauguration at the coronation itself fresh discords were engendered. Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, the son of Edward's uncle, Edmund Crouchback, bore Curtana, or the Sword of Mercy, and Henry of Lancaster, his brother, the royal rod, surmounted with the dove. But the indignation of the nobles exceeded all bounds, when it was found that the king had assigned the envied office of bearing St. Edward's crown to his unpopular favorite, who, on this occasion, was dressed more magnificently than the sovereign himself. This gave such offense to one of the earls of the blood royal, that nothing but the respect due to the young queen restrained him from slaying him, within the sacred walls of the abbey. The Archbishop of Canterbury being absent from the realm at that period, the king and queen were consecrated and crowned by the Bishop of Winchester. So great was the concourse of spectators at this coronation, that many serious accidents occurred, through the eager desire of the people to obtain a sight of the beautiful young queen, and a knight, Sir John Bakewell, was trodden to death. Gaveston had taken upon himself the whole management of the coronation ceremonial, and either his arrangements were made with little judgment, or his directions were perversely disobeyed, for it was, from the beginning to the end, a scene of the most provoking confusion and disorder. It was three o'clock before the consecration of the king and queen was over, and when we consider the shortness of the winter days, we cannot wonder at the fact stated, that though there was abundance of provisions of every kind, there was not a morsel served up at the queen's table before dark. The lateness of the dinner hour appears to have excited the indignation of the hungry nobles more than any other of Gaveston's misdeeds that day. The banquet was, moreover, badly cooked, and, when at last brought to table, ill-served, and few of the usual ceremonies were observed, for the want of the proper officers to oversee and direct. In short, all classes were dissatisfied and out of humor, especially the queen, on whom many slights were put, but whether out of accident or willful neglect is not stated. The French princes and nobles returned home, in a state of great exasperation at the affronts which they considered their princess had received and isabella herself sent a letter to the king her father full of complaints of her lord and his all-powerful favourite gaveston this had the effect of inducing philip le bel to strengthen the party of the discontented barons against gaveston with all his influence and gave an excuse to the french party for commencing those intrigues which terminated so fatally at last for Edward II. King Edward was at that time in great pecuniary distress, having emptied his treasury in gifts to Gaveston, so that he had not wherewithal to pay his coronation expenses, nor to supply his household. As for his young queen, she was wholly without money, which caused her great uneasiness and discontent. It is possible that if Isabella had been of an age more suitable to that of her husband, and of a less haughty temper, her beauty and talents might have created a counter-influence to that of the Gascon favorite, productive of beneficial effects. But at the period of his marriage, Edward was in his three-and-twentieth year, and evidently considered a consort, who was only entering her teens, as entitled to a very trifling degree of attention, either as a queen or a wife. Isabella was, however, perfectly aware of the importance of her position in the English court, and even had she been as childish in mind as she was in age, she was too closely allied in blood to the great leaders of the disaffected peers of England, Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, and his brother, Henry, Earl of Derby, to remain quiescently in the background. The mother of the above-named nobles, Blanche of Artois, the Queen Dowager of Navarre, was Isabella's maternal grandmother. Consequently, the sons of Queen Blanche, by her second marriage with Edmund, Earl of Lancaster, were half-uncles to the young queen, and resolutely determined to act as her champions against Piers Gaveston, who was now allied to the royal family by his marriage with Margaret of Gloucester, the daughter of Edward's sister, Joanna of Acre. Gaveston was not only the Adonis of the English court, but remarkable for his knightly prowess, graceful manners, and sparkling wit. It was the latter qualification which rendered him peculiarly displeasing to the English nobles, whom he was accustomed to deride and mimic, for the amusement of his thoughtless sovereign. Nor was the queen exempted, when he was disposed to display his sarcastic powers. The sins of the tongue are those which more frequently provoke a deadly vengeance than any other offense. And Gaveston's greatest crime appears, to have been the fatal propensity of saying unforgivable things in sport. Isabella's father secretly incited the English barons to a combination against Gaveston, which compelled the king to promise to send him beyond seas. This engagement Edward deceitfully performed, by making him viceroy of Ireland, which country, his worst enemy's own, he ruled with great ability. The queen's pecuniary distresses were then brought before the lords, and as they found there was no money in the treasury, to furnish her with an income befitting her station, the revenues of the county of Pomfieu and Montreux, the inheritance of the king's mother, were appropriated to her use. The king specified as his wish, that his dearest consort, Isabella, Queen of England, shall be honorably and decently provided with all things necessary for her chamber, and all expenses for jewels, gifts, and every requisite." During the first year of Isabella's marriage with Edward II, her father, Philip le Belle of France, appears to have acquired some degree of ascendancy in the councils of the nation, for we observe several letters in Rymers Federa, from Edward to his father-in-law, in which he condescends to explain his conduct with regard to Gaveston to that monarch, and weakly solicits his mediation with his turbulent barons. The following year Gaveston took occasion to return to England, to attend a tournament at Wallingford. The magnificence of his retinue, and the great number of foreigners by whom he was surrounded, served to increase the jealous displeasure of the barons. Gaveston, according to his old practice, retaliated their hostility with scornful raillery, and on this occasion bestowed provoking sobriquets on the leaders of the feud against him. The Earl of Pembroke, who was dark, thin, and sallow-complected, he called Joseph the Jew, the Earl of Warwick, who foamed at the mouth when angry, the wild boar of Ardeen, and the Earl of Lancaster, from his affecting a picturesque style of dress, the stage player, and in like manner he characterized the rest of the party, either from their peculiarities or defects. These insults were not only treasured up against a fearful day of reckoning, but had the effect of stirring up such a storm in the court, as made the throne of his royal master totter under him. The queen, her uncle, the Earl of Lancaster, and all the baronage of England, made common cause against Gaveston, and Edward, not daring to oppose so potent a combination, dismissed his favorite to Guienne. At parting, the king lavished on Gaveston all the jewels of which he was possessed, even to the rings, brooches, buckles, and other trinkets, which his young and lovely consort had at various times, presented to him as tokens of regard. Nothing could be greater proof of folly than such a proceeding, which was sure to create feelings of grief or resentment, in the bosom of a high-spirited girl of fifteen. Queen Isabella was at that time much beloved by the nation, and we hear no more of her complaints of conjugal infelicity, till the year 1312, when, to her great displeasure, as well as that of the nobles, the king recalled Gaveston and made him his principal secretary of state. All the affairs of the realm were under his control, and no one could obtain access to the sovereign except through him. He was accused withal of leading the king into a reckless course of dissipation, very offensive and injurious to the queen. Isabella, not being of a temper to bear her wrongs in silence, angrily remonstrated with Gaveston, on which he so far forgot the respect due to her high rank as to make a contemptuous reply, and when she passionately complained to the king of the affront she had received from his insolent favorite, Edward treated it as a matter of little importance. It appears evident that, at this period, Isabella was only considered by him as a petulant child." Less perilous, however, would it have been to offer slights and provocations to a princess of more advanced age and mature judgment. For Isabella vented her indignant feelings by sending an eloquent detail of her wrongs to her father, the king of France, to whom she wrote bitter complaints of her royal husband's coldness and neglect, describing herself as the most wretched of wives, and accusing Gaveston of being the cause of all her troubles, by alienating King Edward's affection from her, and leading him into improper company. King Edward's letters, at the same period, to the father of his queen, are written in the most slavish style of prostration, and he constantly applies to him for counsel and assistance in his internal troubles, apparently unconscious that his dearest lord and father, as he calls the treacherous Philip, was the secret agitator by whom his rebel peers were incited to disturb his dreams of pleasure. It is remarkable that Isabella's name is mentioned but once in Edward's letters to the king, her father, and then merely to certify that she is in good health and will, God propitius, be fruitful. It was not, however, till the fifth year of Isabella's marriage with Edward the Second that any well-grounded hope existed of her bringing an heir to England, and the period at which this joyful prospect first became apparent was amidst the horrors of civil war. The Earl of Lancaster, at the head of the malcontent barons, took up arms against the sovereign in the year 1312, in order to limit the regal authority, and to compel Edward to dismiss Piers Gaveston from his councils. Isabella accompanied her lord and his favorite to York, and shared their flight to Newcastle where, not considering either Gaveston or himself safe from the victorious barons who had entered York in triumph, Edward, in spite of all her tears and passionate entreaties to the contrary, abandoned her and took shipping with Gaveston for Scarborough. The forsaken queen, on the advance of the Confederate barons, retired to Tynemouth. During her residence at Tynemouth Castle, Isabella employed her time in charity and almsdeeds. Of this, most interesting evidence appears in the royal household book for 1312. October 9, to little Tomaline the Scotch orphan boy, to whom the queen being moved to charity by his miseries, gave food and raiment to the amount of six and six pence. But Isabella's good work did not stop with feeding and clothing the poor destitute creature. She provided for the future welfare of little Tomaline. for we find another entry to the same orphan, on his being sent to London to dwell with Agnes, the wife of Jeanne, the Queen's French organist, for his education, for necessaries bought him, and for curing his maladies, 52 shillings and 8 pence. While the Queen remained disconsolate at Tynemouth, Lancaster, who had got possession of Newcastle, sent a deputation to his royal niece, with assurances of her safety, explaining, that their sole object was to secure the person of the favorite. The king, meantime, having left Gaveston in the strong fortress of Scarborough, proceeded to levy forces in the Midland counties for his defense. The indignation of the men of the north of England had, however, been so greatly excited at his neglect and desertion of the queen, while in a situation which required more than ordinary sympathy and tenderness, that they rose, en masse, to storm her adversary in his shelter, and Gaveston, being destitute of provisions, or the means of standing a siege, surrendered to the Confederate lords, on condition of being safely conducted to the king, and allowed free communication with him, previously to his trial before the Parliament. In violation of the articles of this treaty, which the Earl of Lancaster and the rest of the Confederate barons had solemnly sworn to observe, Gaveston was brought to a sham trial, and beheaded at Blacklow Hill, near Warwick, on a spot which, in memory of the tragedy committed there, is called Gavishead. The barons enjoyed the extreme satisfaction of ransacking the baggage of the luckless favorite, where they found many of the crown jewels, some articles of gold and silver plate belonging to the king, and a great number of precious ornaments, which had been presented to the king by Queen Isabella, his married sisters, and other persons of high rank. There is a minute list of these valuables in rhymers for Dera, and the catalogue is indeed likely enough to have excited the indignation of the jealous peers, who, on the green hillside, sat in relentless judgment on the man whom the king delighted to honor. Notwithstanding her avowed hostility against Gaveston, there is no reason to suppose that Isabella was in the slightest degree implicated in his murder, though his misconduct to her was one of the principal grounds of accusation used by the earl of lancaster against him when edward received the tidings of the tragic fate of the companion of his childhood he was transported with rage and grief and declared his intention of inflicting a deadly vengeance on the perpetrators of the outrage he sullenly withdrew from london to canterbury and finally joined the queen at windsor where she was awaiting the birth of their first child this auspicious event took place on the 13th day of November, at forty minutes past five in the morning, in the year 1312, when Isabella then, in the 18th year of her age, and the fifth of her marriage, brought into the world the long-desired heir of England, afterwards that most renowned of our monarchs, Edward the Third, surnamed of Windsor, from the place of his birth. The gloom and sullen sorrow in which the king had been plunged ever since the death of Gaveston, yielded to feelings of paternal rapture at this joyful event, and he testified his approbation by bestowing on John lounges, valet to the queen, and Isabel his wife, twenty pounds, and settled the same on them as an annual pension for life. Scarcely less delighted were Isabella's uncles, the Count of Evreux and the French nobles, who were then sojourning in England, at the birth of the royal infant, who was remarkable for his beauty and vigour. They entreated the king to name the young prince, Louis, after the heir of France and the Count of Evreux, but the idea was not agreeable to the national feelings of the English in general, and it was insisted by the nobles that the newborn heir of England should receive the name of his royal father and his renowned grandfather, Edward. Four days after his birth, he was baptized with great pomp in the old chapel of St. Edward in the castle of Windsor. Isabella's influence after this happy event was very considerable with her royal husband, and at this period her conduct was all that was prudent, amiable, and feminine. It was through her mediation that a reconciliation was, at length, effected between King Edward and his barons, and tranquility restored to the perturbed realm. Before the amnesty was published, Queen Isabella visited Aquitaine in company with her royal husband, From thence they went to Paris, where they remained at the court of Philip the Fair nearly two months, enjoying the feasts and pageants which the wealthy and magnificent court of France provided for their entertainment. Plays were represented on the occasion, being mysteries and moralities for amusement and admonishment, entitled The Glory of the Blessed and the Torments of the Damned. Through the earnest entreaties of the Queen, the long-delayed pardon was published by King Edward, October 13th, 1313, without any exceptions, and the royal deed of grace expressly certifies that this pardon and remission is granted by the king through the prayers of his dearest companion, Isabella, Queen of England. The Parliament met amicably, and the barons solemnly made their submission on their knees to the sovereign in Westminster Hall before all the people. Soon after, the Earl of Warwick, the most active agent in the death of Gaveston, dying suddenly, was industriously circulated by his friends, that he had been taken off by poison. The barons mistrusted the king, and Queen Isabella was the only link that kept them from open war. End of section 13